Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You may turn to Job chapter 3. Let me begin by wishing you all a happy Reformation Day. Even though it coincides with Halloween, I don't think there will be any little ghoulies or hobgoblins showing up at the front door here looking for candy. But since Jeff brought some, yeah, it's, it's going to work out good. So, Why, oh why, do bad things happen to good people? You ever heard that question? It's because we just inherently think that if God is just, that good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people. It's just the way we think. Well, we know theologically that one of the basic tenets of everything we believe is that there are no good people. So that kind of levels the playing field across the board. So the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is kind of a silly question, since there are no good people. But that's the essence of what we're going to see develop here in the next couple chapters of Job. The conversation between Job and his three friends is going to center around the question, Job, since God is just... And since he always punishes sin, and since you're being punished, you must have sinned. It just seems axiomatic. You must have done something wrong. Now, as you may recall from last week, Job repeatedly not only retained his own integrity, but God himself kept saying to Satan, have you considered Job? He's an upright man. He eschews evil. So even God didn't ever say, well, I'm going to have to punish him because he did something wrong. God punished him because God is sovereign and because God wanted to make an example of him that he worshipped God in the good times. He would also worship God in the bad times. So Job at the beginning of chapter 3 here is going to lament his own condition. Now, remember what that means. Job has already lost 10 children in one day. I want you to put shoe leather on that for just a moment. I mean, it would be bad to lose one child. But all 10 in one day? That's a level of grief that is just difficult to imagine. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, he lost all his livestock which means he was wiped out financially. Now, through the years, I have dealt with people who have been in uh, dire financial straits, some of whom were at one time quite wealthy. And then something would happen. The stock market would take a downturn, or they would invest all their money in the wrong stuff, or real estate would bottom out, or for whatever reason, they would lose all their riches. And I know from watching that that's really upsetting because these people have been really upset about everything they lose. So, so far, kids gone, that's horrible. Finances gone, that's horrible. And then Job is covered from head to foot in boils. Boils that are bleeding, that he has to cut open with a broken piece of pottery to let the pus ooze out, and he's in constant pain. When his friends find him, he's sitting on an ash heap, and he's scraping his skin with a piece of broken pottery. In fact, as you'll recall, when they saw him from a distance, as they were coming toward him, when they saw him, they didn't recognize him because he was just that sickly and emaciated and and just horrible. So now, now you've lost all your children. Terrible. You've lost all your financial wealth. 
terrible. And now you've lost your health. Terrible. And Job's going to say, I want to die. And that would be the natural, instinctive response. Mm -hmm. Anybody in that situation, or even one of those three situations, would reach the point of thinking, I've had enough of this. I just want to die. But God had said to Satan, you can touch his flesh, but you can't kill him. So Job has to live. Job has to endure what he's going through. So if anybody ever had a right to complain, Job does. But once he laments his condition, immediately Eliphaz, one of his three friends, comes right back at him and starts saying, you've done something wrong. Just admit what you've done wrong. And that's going to be the conversation for the next 20 or so chapters. It's just going to go on and on with Job saying, I'm innocent of this thing. I can't think of anything I've done. He's going to retain his integrity, the integrity that even his own wife came and said, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. Last week when I brought that up, on the way home, my wife said, you got to remember, she was probably deeply grieving as well. She just lost 10 children too. She just lost all her financial ability and, and her husband is sitting on an ash heap covered in boils. So she's having a really bad day too when she comes to her husband and says, why do you retain your integrity? Why don't you just die? So everything from every corner, every aspect is coming at Job hard. So of course he would lament. And he's going to lament several times in the next several chapters, and we're going to see a pattern develop. First, Job is going to lament, and then one of the three friends is going to accuse him. And then Job is going to answer his accuser and say, no, you're wrong. I I haven't done anything wrong. And yet, By the time you get to the end of the third round of conversation, and in the third round of conversation, one of his three friends doesn't even argue with him anymore. He's just given up on him. And at that point, it's like Job finally breaks. And Job says, if God was here, I'd demand of him, and he'd have to answer to me, and and God shows up. (laughs) Yeah, kind of talking out of turn there. Now, from chapter 3 forward until the very last chapter of the book, you're going to see Hebrew poetry. Now, when I say Hebrew poetry, that's very, very different than what we would consider 21st century poetry because it's not about rhyming and it's not about iambic pentameter. It's not about rhythm and structure. It's about saying the same thing two different ways. And sometimes those statements are parallel. He's saying the same thing and then saying it twice, just saying it in a different way. Like, it's dark and the sun doesn't give light. Okay, well, that's saying it's dark two different ways. And that's what you're going to see happening here through this whole middle section of the book, which is why folks down through the years have said, just as literature... This book is absolutely brilliant, especially considering how ancient it is. But it also operates on this poetic structure all the way now till the very last chapter of the book. Sometimes you're going to see these parallels that are comparative, which means that there's a contrast in them. So sometimes he's going to say the same thing in two opposite ways so that you kind of get the point. But this is why the book of Job has always been bundled with the writing books, with the poetry books in the Jewish Tanakh. It's because it is so poetic, starting here. But as I say poetic, don't think Dr. Seuss. It's not about Sam I Am and Green Eggs and Ham. It's not rhyming. It's making parallel statements. Like, for instance... 
chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. In other words, he just thought it would be better if I just hadn't been born than to have life and have to endure this. I would have rather just not existed. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night which said a boy is conceived. Okay, so that's a parallelism. He has said two different things. Whether the night on which his birth or his conception was announced, whether that was erased or whether the day on which he was actually born was erased, either way, he doesn't exist. So this is what I'm talking about in this Jewish parallelism. May that day, says verse 4, may that day be darkness and let not God above care for it nor light shine on it. So let the day be darkness. Don't let any light shine on it. You see how this works? I'm not going to point that out in every single verse, but I want you to understand it so that as we read through it, you can feel these parallels happening. Verse 5. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. He's talking about the day of his birth. Let a cloud settle on it. And let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night... Let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. In other words, he's saying, I wish that day just didn't exist. I wish we had 300 other days and not that day, the day of my birth. Behold, says verse 7, behold, let that night be barren. In other words, no children born. And let no joyful shout enter it. When a baby was born, there would be joyful shouting. But let there be no joyful shouting, because that night was the night of my birth, and then it resulted in this. Verse 8 says, Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Now we have to talk about Leviathan for a couple of minutes. Because Leviathan is not only mentioned in Job. He's also mentioned in the book of Isaiah. He's also mentioned in the Psalms. He's also mentioned at the end of the book of Job. I think it's chapter 41, right about there. Where God is going to make reference to Leviathan and say, Can you put a hook in the jaw of Leviathan? The implication being, I can. So commentators believe that there's two aspects to this language of Leviathan. The first is real creature that actually dwelt in the sea, probably some dinosaur creature, some giant predecessor of alligators and crocodiles because he's described as being scaly and huge. But then there was a mythological aspect to Leviathan. There was an entire myth around Leviathan where he was a dragon with seven heads But then you get to the book of Revelation, and you find the woman riding on a dragon with seven heads. So it's perhaps not that odd a myth. And then if you really upset that dragon, according to the myth, he would jump up out of the sea and eat the sun, which would cause heartburn, I'm thinking. Okay, never. And so when he says... Those that would prepare to rouse up Leviathan, I think that's what he's talking about. Go make Leviathan angry so that he would go and stop the sun from lighting that day. That day would just not exist at all. But like I said, Leviathan is also a genuine creature, a sea creature, a sea monster he's considered. And God's going to speak of him and say, I control him. So in that case, Leviathan also takes on sort of a form of Satan or of evil generally or of God's control over even the evil elements of the world. Starting at verse 9. Let the stars of that day and that night, the stars of its twilight, let them be darkened. Let it wait for light that have none. Neither let it see the breaking dawn. 
because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. In other words, I wish that day just didn't exist. And the reason I hate that day so much is that it allowed my mother to give birth and she gave birth to me. And I would rather have not lived than have this level of trouble, this level of pain. Why, says verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Why you set a baby on your knees? Or why did the breasts that I should suck? For now, I would have lain down and been quiet. In other words, I'd prefer to be dead. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. But because I didn't die back when I was born, I had to endure all this. I lived long enough to endure all this. And then this is the way that he describes death. Had he died as a child, he would be, verse 14, with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. In other words, the high and the mighty, the ones who could afford to rebuild ruins and make edifices to themselves. Verse 15, or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver. In other words, I'd be like all the dead, wealthy, rich, powerful people, or, verse 16, or like a miscarriage, which is discarded. I would not be as infants that never saw light. In other words, he's saying, I'd be with the rest of the dead, the high and mighty, and the weakest of them all. The miscarriage that was that was born and then discarded, or the high and mighty that went down to the grave, that's where I'd be, and that would be better than where I am. He's just trying to describe the agony he's in. Verse 17 says, There, in the grave, in death, there the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together, They do not hear the voice of their taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who suffers? How did I start tonight? Why do bad things happen to good people? This is just another version of that same question. Why is light? Why is life? Why is illumination given to people who come into this life, who live on this planet, and then end up suffering. Job's asking that question. Why does this this life even exist if it had to culminate in this? Why is light given to him who suffers? Why is life given to the bitter of soul? Who long for death, but there is none. And they dig for it more than for hidden treasure. In other words, Job wants to die so badly that he said, I dig for it like people dig for treasure. If you know there's a treasure and you know it's just five feet down into the ground, how anxious are you going to be to dig? You can start doing some active digging because you know there's a treasure down there. He said that treasure for him is death. I long to die. And I dig for it more than hidden treasure. Who rejoice greatly and they exult when they have found the grave. He said the day of my death is going to be the great day. Not that day of my birth. Not that shouting for joy. That was an awful thing because I was born and now I have to do all this. But boy, the day that I die, I'm going to be relieved. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to go to rest. Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Okay, now he's making a big theological statement there. He said, why is a person allowed to live if they're not allowed to understand the things they go through? Anybody here gone through something and you've just said, why? I don't get it. I don't understand. Why is this happening? Well, you're asking the same question Job asked. Why is light given to somebody whose way is hidden from them? 
They don't know why it's happening and they can't avoid it because God hedged them into it. God built a hedge around them where they had no choice but go through that thing. So Job is asking, why does God even do it that way? Why give light to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Verse 24, for my groaning comes at the sight of food. I can't even eat. And my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I think we could all say, and I certainly saw your faces when I said, it would be awful to lose one child. And all the parents in the room went, yeah, yeah. We would all have to admit that's, that's part of the fear, part of the dread, part of the thing that we hope doesn't happen in this lifetime. But it happens sometimes. That's what he's saying. The thing I dreaded, the thing I feared. Remember, he used to sacrifice for his children every time they got together, just in case any of them had sinned. He loved his children, and he lost all of them at once. We go through our lives with a certain sense of, I hope I don't get sick. I was sick this past weekend, and, and I would like to think when I'm healthy, I, I like to think, well, if I get sick, I'll just endure it. But I don't. I get sick, and I'm on the couch crying for mommy and watching cartoons. I'm, I'm, I'm sick. I called Tom and said, what do you got? Bring it to me. I mean, i just sick. In fact, I heard my daughter on the recording tell the honest story that when she called me Sunday morning and said, what can I bring you? I said, you got a gun? And so I did. I, I mean, I, I was just sick. Okay, well, that's something that I endured. I went through. It was just a cold. I got over it, some kind of virus thing. I'm getting through it. But then you think, wow, what if I had like a really bad disease? Doesn't that kind of scare you? Because you see folks on the planet who get really bad diseases. What if that came on you? Then you'd have to say, the thing I fear came on me. And then people who have money, and I have known people through the... I've known some rich people. I used to be in rock and roll, and I knew some really successful people. Hollywood people with lots of dough. And you know what they feared most? Losing that money. Oh, they were so afraid to lose their money because their money defined them. Okay, so there's three for three right now. I might get sick. That's a fear. I might lose my children. That's a fear. I might lose my stuff. That's a fear. All three of those came on Job. So he could rightly say, what I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. So chapter 4, Eliphaz the Temanite decides to speak up. And his way of comforting Job is to say to Job, essentially, look, you have to have brought this on yourself. Because God, you know, God, he's a righteous God. He's a just God. He only punishes people who deserve it. So you clearly deserve it. What have you done to deserve it? Why don't you just admit that you deserve it, and then maybe God will be better to you. Now, of course, that is part of the theology, as I showed you last week, that at the end of the book, God's going to show up and say that his anger is kindled at Eliphaz and the other two, because they did not say what was right about God. So, in other words, the theology of God reacts to human beings God reacts to men. He always punishes people because they deserve it. The inverse of that would be he blesses people because they deserve it. Well, that's not the theology of the Bible. That's not the theology of God. It's not what we believe or teach. It's not what the Bible says. It says that God is gracious and kind to people. 
not because they deserve it. Nobody could deserve it. He's good to people because he's God and he does whatever he wants. Okay, then the inverse is true. He brings trouble when he wants because he's the sovereign God who can do whatever he wants. And that's the position that Job is taking. So his friends start to argue with him. Now, had Facebook existed in this period, <laughs> Job would have made a meme of the chapter we just read where he wants to die. And then Eliphaz would write like a thousand notes to him about what a fool he is and how much I disagree and I'm right and you're wrong and you're a heretic and you're... That's essentially what's happening here, just pre-Facebook. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered. He said, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? In other words, are you going to be impatient with me if I say something to you now? I've been quiet for seven days. We've been sitting with you here for seven days, but now you've opened your mouth and you've given us your lament and you've lamented what has befallen you, and you seem to think that it's not your fault. So let me correct you, because after all, who can refrain from speaking? Another Facebook phrase right there. Who can refrain from typing? <laughs> Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. In other words, when you were strong, when you were rich, you used to help people. You helped lots of people. You admonished them and you strengthened their weakness. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. And you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it's come to you. In other words, that feebleness, that weakness has now come to you. And you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear, your reverence of God, isn't that your confidence? And the integrity of your ways, isn't that your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Do you hear the argument? Mm -hmm. He's saying, up till now, your confidence has been that you fear and reverence God. And up till now, your integrity has been your hope. You've been saying, well, well God's going to have to do something here because my integrity is secure. I've worshipped God correctly. I haven't done anything wrong. And he said, up until now, that's what you've been trusting in. But remember now, here's his theological statement, whoever perished, whoever went through this, and they were innocent. Clearly, you're not innocent or this wouldn't have happened to you. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, and where were the upright destroyed? There it is. See, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And bad things are happening to you, therefore you're not innocent. Therefore you're not upright. Because show me another example where the upright are destroyed. Verse 8. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. In other words, you're going through all this trouble of your own making. You're the one that planted and plowed your iniquity. You're the one who sowed trouble. Just admit what it is. What did you do? What have you done, Job? All of this trouble is coming to you because you have some iniquity. And by the breath of God, those bad people, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. So Job, you're perishing. You're coming to an end of yourself. You must be guilty. You have some iniquity. That's why you're perishing. Verse 10, the roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. And the lion perishes for lack of prey, and his whelps of the lioness are scattered. Okay, so that's like a little parable where he's saying, once upon a time you were like a lion, and your sons were like lions. But then your teeth got broken, and once that happened, you can't eat anymore. So for lack of prey, for lack of animals to feed on, 
Now you're perishing and your children, your whelps, are scattered. In other words, everything that's coming to you and your children being taken from you, it's your fault. Just admit what you've done. Isn't this a good friend so far? This is a good buddy, right? You're happy he's around when you're struggling. Now, verse 12. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. It came to me. It whispered in my ear. I received this revelation from God, and God told me about you. I think I told you one time. I'll just tell you this real quick. There was a woman who came up to me years ago who said to me, God gave me a word for you. And I said, oh, that's weird because God talked to me too. And he told me he doesn't talk to you. So a word was brought to me stealthily and my ear received the whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. In other words, I dreamed it. Dread came upon me and trembling and it made all my bones shake. And then a spirit passed by my face, and the hair of my flesh bristled up. Isn't this convincing? Aren't you ready to hear what this is now? It's very appropriate for Halloween. <laughs> it seems appropriate for Halloween. <laughs> and then it stood still, that spirit, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes, and there was silence. And then I heard a voice, and it said, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, through the years, I've actually seen people preach that and even make memes of it. That's too many Facebook references in one night, but, <laughs> but they've put that up there like it's true. Can a man be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Well, if you put that into a Calvinistic context, we would obviously say, well, that's good theology, and no, a man cannot be pure before his maker. No, man is a worm, and so there's no way that they can be just before God. The just shall live by faith. They can't individually be good and righteous. But in context, what Eliphaz is saying to him is, I know how guilty you are and you keep retaining your integrity and there's just no way that a man like you can possibly be just and righteous before God. It can't happen. So he's accusing Job with that phrase. He's not developing a good Calvinistic theology. He's not making a sound doctrinal statement. He's saying you're guilty. Admit it. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And of course, he's hearing this, you know, from this spirit, so you can't argue with him. He, God, puts no trust even in his servants and against his angels. He charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay? In other words, if God puts no trust in his servants and in his angels... Now, we don't know if God puts trust in his angels and his servants. We just know that Eliphaz is claiming that this nighttime dreamy spirit told him that God doesn't act like this. So he's saying, if God doesn't even trust his servants and against his own angels, he charges error, how much more is he going to hold you guilty? Who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed Beneath a moth. In other words, he's saying we're so fragile. Between morning and evening, they are broken in pieces. Men are so fragile and unobserved, they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them and they die yet without wisdom? In Middle Eastern thought, in Middle Eastern philosophy, the whole point of human life is to collect wisdom. That's why even in the Old Testament you have the wisdom books. And so here he has said that God not only doesn't trust his own servants, but that he rebukes and holds accountable his own angels, and therefore he holds men guilty 
So how can you keep retaining this idea that you're just and you're upright and that you eschew evil and that you, that you haven't done something because God is reacting to you so you clearly did something and all you are is just a man and you're going to fall apart. And after you fall apart, you're going to die and be buried unobserved and then you're going to perish forever. And your tent cord is plucked up. In other words, this tent of human flesh you live in is going to collapse like a tent once you pull up the cords. Once you take up the tent cords, the tent collapses. And they die, and even then, without wisdom. So the whole point of your life has collapsed. But wait, he's not done. Chapter 5. Call now. Is there anyone to answer you? And to which Of the holy ones will you turn? In other words, have you noticed how you're crying in your anguish and no one's answering? Have you noticed that? Well, that's because you are actually that guilty. You're that unjust that when you call to the holy ones, no one answers you. That's how guilty you are. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For vexation slays the foolish man, and anger kills the simple. So you voiced your anger over what you're going through. You voiced your vexation, and that means that you're just a fool and a simpleton. And that's why you're going to die without wisdom. This is such a buddy talking, such a pal, such a pat on the back. I have seen the foolish taking root, and I cursed his abode immediately. Dig me. I know the difference between me, the smart one, and the foolish ones. I cursed his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety, and they are even oppressed in the gate, and neither is there a deliverer. Do you understand what he's saying? Your sons all perished, all of them in a day. Why is that? Because your sons, the sons of a fool are far from safety. So of course they all perished immediately because you're the fool. You're the one who continues to argue for your integrity when you're so guilty and there's no deliverer for your children. Verse 5, his harvest, the hungry devour and they take it to a place of thorns and the schemer is eager for their wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust. Okay, now he's going to start saying the affliction you're going through is from God. He's doing this to you. For affliction does not come from the dust, neither does trouble sprout up from the ground. For a man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Has anybody ever seen Woodburn? Which way did the sparks go? They all go up. You never see sparks zooming sideways. And so he says the same way that that's a truism, the sparks fly upward. Well, it's also true that a man is born for trouble. And that trouble doesn't come out of the ground. It doesn't come out of the dust. Verse 8, here's his point. But as for me, in other words, if I were you, I would seek God. And I would place my cause before God. That implies that Job has not done that. That Job continues to retain his integrity. And you need to go and just admit to God that you've done terribly wrong. And place your cause before God. But then again, that's what I would do. I mean, I'm not saying you should do that. But as for me, that's what I would do. I'd place my cause before God who does great and unsearchable things. Wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth, and he sends water on the fields, so that he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. And yet here you are mourning. Here you are complaining. If you had just turned your way over to God, he would have lifted you by now, because that's what he's like. Name it. Claim it. He's a prosperity preacher at this point. You know, if you were in God's goodwill, then God would be lifting you and everything would be going right for you. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that the hand cannot attain success. 
He captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness, and they grope at noon as in the night. But he saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty. In other words, he saves and he saves. If you're poor, if you're distressed, he's going to save you. He's going to take care of you. So the helpless has hope. Remember a moment ago, he said, your integrity is your hope. You need to hope in God. You need to admit to him what you've done wrong. So the helpless has hope and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. So he's saying again, you're being disciplined. Okay, anybody here ever discipline anybody? Sandy, you ever discipline your kids? Oh. <laughs> okay. He is saying that the reason that Job is going through trouble is that he's being disciplined by God. Now, do you discipline your children because you hate them or because you love them? Well, that's what Eliphaz is saying. God is reproving you. He's correcting you. And if he's correcting you, you must have done something wrong. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to correct you. But this is all coming on you, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he inflicts pain, but he gives relief. He wounds, and his hands also heal. From six troubles he will deliver you, and even in the seventh, evil will not touch you. You hear what he's saying? If you had just done it the right way, if you had just confessed to God, instead of retaining this integrity of yours, he would have delivered you by now. Six troubles, seven troubles, however many, he would have delivered you. In famine, he will redeem you from death, and in war, from the power of the sword. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. Neither will you be afraid of violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence and famine, and neither will you be afraid of wild beasts. For you will be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. In other words, since this was an agrarian culture and they had to go out and plow fields and stones were always their enemies, he was saying, you're going to have plenty of crops, you're going to have a lot of food, even the stones are going to be in league with you, and the beasts of the fields aren't going to come and eat all your stuff or kill you. Everything's going to go good for you if you'll just get on God's side in this. And you will know that your tent is secure. What a terrible thing to say to a guy who just lost all his children when a house fell on them. And your tent would be secure if you had just done it the right way. For you will visit your abode and fear no loss. He just lost everything. But if you had done it God's way, you would fear no loss. You will know also that your descendants will be many. What a cruel thing to say to a man who just lost all his descendants. And your offspring will be like the grass of the earth. I mean, Eliphaz is not a nice guy at this point. And you will go to the grave in full vigor, in full health. That's my goal, by the way, to die healthy. That's my plan. I don't want to wither up and linger. I want to be healthy, and then one day God goes, okay, you're done. Takes my breath away, I die healthy. He's saying that's what will happen to you. And yet Job is sitting there covered in boils, sickly, bleeding, pus running out of him. They don't even recognize him. But hey, if you had done it God's way, you would have gone to the grave in full vigor. Thanks, Eliphaz. <laughs> and you will come to the grave in full vigor like the stacking of grain in its season. Then he does a little trick in verse 27 at the end of his speech. He takes authority and says, now we've looked into this, and what I just said to you, that's all true. Behold this, we have investigated, and thus it is. So hear it and know for yourself. In other words, you don't know anything. I just got done calling you a fool. You have no wisdom. I have wisdom. 
In fact, I have this wisdom because in a dream, some kind of spirit came to me and told me all these things about God. And I'm telling you, and the three of us, we've investigated what I've just told you, and it's all true. You'd be wise to listen up, Job. So he's blamed Job. Now we're going to read Job's first response, and then we'll stop. Then Job answered, Oh, that my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my iniquity. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, let's put my sin on one side of the balance. Let's put my pain and vexation on the other side and see which weighs more. In other words, he says, my vexation, my pain, my agony is much more than my iniquity. And here you're saying that this is all happening to me because of my iniquity. Oh, then my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my iniquity. For then it, my iniquity, would be heavier than the sands of the sea. Have you ever picked up wet sand? Clumpy wet sand? Heavy. Heavy. He says, that's, that's what my vexation is like. And therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, and their poison my spirit drinks, and the terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray over his grass? Or does the ox low over his fodder? The point of that question is, animals don't make those kinds of noises when they have food. If you give them some fodder, you give them some grass, they're going to eat. They're going to stop braying. They're going to stop lowing. They're going to just eat. And he says, the reason that I'm making all this noise is because even my food doesn't taste good to me. I can't even eat. I'm emaciated. That's why I'm making noise. Verse 6, can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? In other words, he's saying, nothing tastes good to me. Nothing. Mm -hmm. My soul refuses to touch them. They are like loathsome food to me. Oh, that my request might come to pass, and that God would grant my longing. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. In other words, I want to die. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or my flesh like bronze? Is it that my help is not within me? Or that deliverance is driven from me? For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. <laughs> Even he's calling Eliphaz out and saying, I expected better of you. And now you've turned it all against me. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have acted deceitfully like the wadi, like the torrents of the wadis which vanish, which are turbid because of ice and into which the snow melts. And when they become waterless, they are silent. And when it is hot, they vanish from their place. Do you know what he's talking about here? Wadis are little pools of water. And after the winter, especially in the marshy lands, you'd find these little pools of, of water. And they're like little torrents. And he says, and then it gets hot, and they dry up, and they're gone. And he says, that's what my brothers are like. They should have come here like cooling water. And instead, they come here like empty vessels. Verse 18, the paths of their course wind along they go into nothing and they perish. That's what the wadis are like. The caravans of Tima looked. The travelers of Sheba hoped for them. He's still talking about these pools of water. When you're out there in the desert, you look for these wadis, these little gatherings of water. And he says, but 
even when the caravans of Timor, the travelers of Sheba go looking for them, they're disappointed for they had trusted and then they came there and they were confounded. Indeed, you have now become such. You see a terror and you are afraid. Have I said, give me anything? Or have I said, offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Or have I said, deliver me from the hand of the adversary? Or have I said, redeem me from the hands of tyrants? In other words, I've asked you for nothing. All you had to do was come here and comfort me, sit with me. And you couldn't even do that. And I didn't ask you for anything hard, anything difficult. Teach me, verse 24, and I will be silent. Since you insist that I should be silent, you teach me and I'll be silent. And you show me how I have erred. Show me where I went wrong here. How painful are honest words. But what does your argument prove? In other words, he's saying, you can be as rough on me as you have to be as long as you're being honest. And the honest words might be painful and I'll be quiet and I'll take it. But so far, you've been no help because your argument doesn't prove anything. What does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? In other words, I'm just expressing pain. I'm just telling you about my agony. It's like words going out into the wind. And yet you reprove me for my words? You would even cast lots for the orphans and barter over your friend. In other words, you're just cruel. You're just mean. You would cast lots for orphans. That's just a way of saying, if children were in front of you, you'd sell them. And you would barter. You would trade over your friends. In other words, we just have a very contemporary phrase where we talk about people who are good weather friends. When everything's good, you got lots of friends. When things go bad, people don't care about you. That's what he's saying. You're the type that would barter over a friend. And now please look at me and see if I lie to your face. By the way, that implication and something Job's going to say in chapter 7, which we'll look at next week, implies that he looked so bad that they had a hard time looking at him. And so Job says, look at me. Now please look at me. And see if I lie to your face. Desist now. Let there be no injustice. Even desist. My righteousness is yet in it. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern calamities? In other words, I know what I'm going through. I know better than you know what I'm going through. I'm the one who's going through it. And I can discern what I'm going through. I know my own integrity. I know my own uprightness. And I know that these things came on me without a reason. You're talking to me like I'm a fool. You're even calling me a fool. But the fact of the matter is, I'm a smart enough man to know what I'm going through. And have I lied to you? Have I asked you for anything? Look at my face. Am I lying to you right now? So then be quiet. Desist. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern my own calamities? Now, starting at chapter 7, the same cycle is going to occur again. When we come back here next week, we're going to see Job, in chapter 7, express his, his outpouring of grief. And then, Bilhad, the Shuhite, and is going to do the same thing. He's going to say, no, no, now wait, Job. You know, Eliphaz has a point. Eliphaz has said some good things here, and we're all in agreement. And then you're going to see Job answer him. Now, this first time around, as I mentioned last week, this first time around, you see them kind of saying, you know, if it was me, you know, they're, they're kind of saying, you're, you're, you're guilty. You probably ought to repent. By the third time around, they're, they're just cutting they're just like, well, we've had about enough of you, and either you repent or we're done with you kind of thought. So it's just going to keep going week by week, worse and worse, 
but you're going to continue to see the battle between the theology that says God reacts to people and the theology of Job that says God is absolutely sovereign in everything he does. That God is on his throne in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So why did God afflict Job? Well, he was pleased to. That's why he did it. And that's the answer. You know, years ago, I did a series that I called the Sovereignty Series, and we talked about sovereignty and prayer. And we talked about sovereignty and evangelism. And the one that people were most interested in, I even took it to Ohio the first time that I went up there, was sovereignty and suffering. Because that's the thing people want to know. If God is absolutely sovereign, why do men suffer? What's the point? Well, as we go through this book, you're going to see that the whole point is that Job is going to continue to express his confidence that God can do whatever God wants to do, that he himself is personally innocent. And when he finally breaks, God is going to show up and declare his absolute sovereignty over absolutely everything. From the sweet influence of the Pleiades down to feeding baby lions. He does it all. And his question repeatedly is going to be, can you do that? (laughs) No, you can't do that. He's even going to say, when you can start bringing lightning down, when you can start making your own name great, when you can make the enemies of the world do your bidding, then I will admit to you that your own right hand could save you. So God is declaring why this life is the way it is. The reason that we struggle, the reason that we suffer, is because it's all for God's glory. Now, the good news is, for those of us who believe in an absolutely sovereign God, that that means that suffering actually has purpose. And to me, that was a great realization, revelation when I came to that. That suffering was not random, and that suffering had some purpose in God's larger thought process and economy. And if we remember that God is much too holy not to do that that brings him the greatest glory, and that he loves us too much not to do that that brings us the greatest good, then whatever we go through, we realize that all things work together for good. Because God in his holiness, his righteousness, and his sovereignty is going to bring trouble into our lives for the purpose of glorifying himself and for the purpose of building our faith, our confidence, and our utter dependence on him. And so, sovereignty and suffering are not contrary. They actually work together. Mm. Make sense? Yes. Did you hear the trouble with Eliphaz's theology? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's going to keep getting weirder as we go. And I saw some really quoted verses. Oh, yeah? Oftentimes quoted. I mentioned that last week, that people will just kind of quote out of Job. And you got to go, wait, wait, wait. Which part of Job is that and who's speaking? Mm-hmm. Because God ends up saying, I don't like that theology. It's funny. You know they're wrong. And yet he has that certain charisma, even in the written word, that makes that if you were to pick apart a few phrases, they would go, oh, that's a good, as you said, uh, to, if you were to take. Well, that sounds good. What he said, it's like, yeah. oh, that's Calvinist theology. That's yeah. fine. But when you take it into context, yeah. not so much. Yeah. If I was just to randomly quote, God said that uh, angels would bear up Jesus lest he dash his foot against a rock. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who said that in the Bible? Satan. Satan. Yeah, Satan said that. Yeah. Yeah. So which side of that argument is? Are you on when you bring that up? So. All right, so we got to be careful when we quote the Bible. I think that's the lesson there. Any questions? You feeling really good now? Man, I just bummed you out, but it is Halloween. So that was your, your Halloween story for the night. Reformation Day there. That's why there was Reformed theology, which was the answer to how bad it otherwise would have been. <laughs> Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. 
and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.